Ten years ago this month, I was anxiously waiting to hear from the Presbytery of Plains and Peaks Committee on Preparation for Ministry to find out what was going to happen. See, ten years ago, I graduated from seminary. I was pretty much done with my classes by this time and had some exams and so forth, but school pretty much wound up by the end of April. And I was waiting to hear what would happen next, because if the the Plains and Peaks Presbyteries Committee on Preparation for Ministry said so, then I could begin looking for a call. I could find a church that wanted me to be the pastor. And if they said no, then who knew what would happen next? Maybe I could, uh, maybe I could wait some longer and, and kind of find out what would happen next. Or maybe I could go back to my previous career as a computer programmer. So I was waiting to find out what my, what my, uh, path ahead of me would be. And the problem was that I had, uh, well, I was going to say I had not passed, but in fact I had flunked two of the ordination exams, or the same ordination exam twice. Uh, the biblical exegesis exam, you're only allowed to take it every six months, and I took it once, and I did not pass it. And then I took it again six months later, and I did not pass it. So in January, I had taken it for the third time, and I was waiting to hear what the results were and whether the, the COPM would tell me that they were acceptable. Well, I did wind up in, in a church. They, they did say that I could look for a call. So it, it all turned out wonderfully. Um, and, and, um, that all worked out. But I say that because the passage we're looking at today is one of the most troublesome passages to people like me, people who have earned qualifications in the church, people who've been to seminary, people who've done the work, people who've sweated it out, waiting to hear from the committee that was in charge of deciding, you know, like or not like, right? That's that's the situation I was in 10 years ago. And so when I read a passage like today's lesson, it reminds me of that circumstance, waiting to find out if I had earned the qualification to do what we see Philip doing in the passage today. And yet, as I read this passage, I can't deny the appeal. I mean, no one reads this passage and says, "Uh uh-oh, trouble ahead. You know, this is a good passage. The Ethiopian goes on his way rejoicing. This is a happy story. And so I struggle with the passage because it pushes all the right buttons in me. It makes me kind of resent my circumstance because I didn't see Philip taking any ordination exams. I didn't see him sweating a COPM and find out what they were going to tell him. So I want to look at this passage partly because it's of interest to me, but I think it's also of interest to a lot of us. We've been in this conversation the last couple of weeks looking at the way that the church, the the things the church has done for most of the last 2,000 years, creating presbyteries and committees on preparation for ministry. A lot of the things the church has been doing for the last uh, many centuries just aren't working anymore. And the church is trying to figure out well, what do we, what, what do we do as the, the Holy Spirit, um, guides us as we try to figure out this new context we find ourselves in, a, a de-churched, a de-Christianized North American context. What is the Holy Spirit going to do? And so one of the things we're doing is we're looking at the book of Acts to see how the early church, which was kind of in the same circumstances, how did they respond to their circumstances when they didn't know what the future was going to be? So that's, that's kind of where we're coming from. But um, what we did last week is we looked at the problem that the church had in chapter 6. In chapter 6, the problem is kind of a nice problem. It's the problem of 
too many people are responding to the good news about Jesus and they're coming to the church and they want, they want to become participants in the life of the church. And there, there are growing pains, but that's a good problem to have. Today we're going to look at the opposite. We're going to look at the, the other people, the ones who don't come to church, the ones who maybe will never come to church. And the reason we're going to look at them is because there's a lot of them and a lot of the people we know fall into that category. There are people we know, there are people we care about who are in that category, people that we do not expect to be in church next Sunday. So we're going to look and see what what did the early church do about people like that, people who maybe they had some kind of a spirituality, they they believed things, they, they weren't just, you know, rank materialists who kind of said that the world is what it is and when you die, that's it. Maybe they were groping along, they had some kind of a spirituality. Maybe Maybe they don't. Maybe... The things that they've done have twisted them so much, or, or maybe the, the things that have been done to them have hurt them so much that they just have given it up. They just say, I can't believe that there's a good God given the circumstances of my life. When I look back at my life, I just don't believe it. I, I saw a survey that came out in 2011. It said that of all the different groups, they classified people by different religious traditions and so forth, and they included uh, atheists and agnostics. And they found out that, uh, interestingly, the group that was angriest at God was the atheists. So um, I find it, you know, I don't believe in unicorns, but I'm not angry at them. And it's just kind of interesting to me that a lot of the people who don't believe in God actually have very good reasons that the circumstances of their life have led them to that. And they say, if there was a God, then explain my life. Because why would a good God allow that to happen? Why would a good God let me do that? Why would a good God let that happen to me? And I think a lot of us can relate to people like that. We know people like that at work or at school. We know people maybe in our own households, our own families, who are in that situation. So we're going to look at what the what the early church did when they had people who did not join that that big swell of people who were flooding into the churches. What about the people who didn't join the church? And if in case you have to leave, that sometimes happens in my messages. Um, if you have to leave, there's, there's two answers. The quick answer is, is uh, first of all, I hope that the church does everything we can to make them feel welcome. The reason they're not staying away is simply because of something the church has done to, to make them unwelcome. But beyond that, and the lesson we're going to look at today is the answer is the church goes to them. If people won't come to church, then the church goes to them. And really, that makes sense. That's really what Jesus did for us, right? When the world had become disconnected from God, when the world could no longer come before God, God came to us. And so when there are people who, for whatever reason, because they're just kind of groping their way along in the dark trying to find God, or because of some hurt that has happened in their life, their circumstances have made them disappointed with or angry with God, then the church comes to them. So... Um, if you open up the scriptures, we're going to be looking at chapter 8, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch. So um, while you're finding the page in your scriptures, um, l- let me bring you up to speed uh, kind of where we're at in the story. In chapter 6, we read about the, the growth of the church and we heard about the, the people who joined the church. And because of that, one of the things we, we heard about last week, you can listen online, but there was this group of seven men who were commissioned to work in the church as table servers. 
that they helped manage the, the food arrangements within the church. And there's a list of them, and we only hear about two. We hear about Stephen and the Philip, the Philip we're going to hear about today. But Stephen, at the end of chapter 6, he's arrested, or he's, or I should say, he's, he's seized by some people, and he is, he is uh, martyred. He is taken outside the city and stoned to death. And that kicks off a big wave of persecution in Jerusalem. And so our chapter begins in chapter uh, 8. It says, those who were scattered. What happened is everyone fled. Um, a few people went into hiding in Jerusalem, but a lot of other people, they just headed for, for any place away from Jerusalem to avoid the persecution that was going on there. And so we're following the story of Philip. It says, those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Now, that's interesting to, to us because that's not a given. Uh, you know, for us, Samaria is just a place. But I want you to stretch your imaginations and imagine the Middle East and imagine that there were different groups of people who disagreed about religion. Okay, I know it's a stretch, but I want you to imagine that circumstance because that was what was going on. The Jews and the Samaritans could not stand each other. And the amazing thing about that is, if you had talked to a Roman or a Greek, you know, a pagan who, who wandered through the area, they would have said these people are all alike. They believe in the same things. But sometimes that's the way it works. The people who, whose belief are closest to you are actually the ones you disagree with the most. Um, and, you know, they just wrote off the pagans. It's like, whatever, you know, pagans. But they really did not like the Samaritans. They didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. But Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter 1, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. So the words that Jesus spoke in chapter 1 are now becoming true because of this persecution that's going on. Philip finds himself in Samaria. And what happens when he gets to Samaria is the crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said. Hearing and seeing the signs he did, unclean spirits come out, uh, all this all this stuff happens, people are cured, and there was great joy in that city. Whenever there's joy somewhere in the world, then leaders in the church have to go check it out. So um, leaders in the church, we're going to skip over this part, but but Philip, I mean, but Peter and John come down from, um, Peter and James, I think, come down from, from uh, Jerusalem to find out what's going on and to pray for the Holy Spirit. They hear about this thing that's going on in Samaria, and they say, well, we better go check that out. So they do. They go to Samaria, they check it out, they pray, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and then they head back up to Jerusalem. They go back into hiding in Jerusalem. And then we pick up the story, starting in chapter, uh, in verse 26, because um, they head back up to Jerusalem, and in verse 26 it says, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So the angel of the Lord tells you what to do. You get up, and he goes. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Can- Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. So he is a he is a powerful person. He's got a lot of authority. He's in charge of a queen's um, bank account. Um, the Ethiopia. When they talk about Ethiopia, what we would say is kind of Sudan, not not our modern nation of Ethiopia, but uh, the part of of the world as you go up the Nile River, further upstream up the Nile River. At some point, they quit calling it Egypt and they started calling it Ethiopia. So he's from that region, um, way up the Nile River. Um, that's the part that they called Ethiopia in those days. And they actually had a king, but the king was too special, so he just stayed indoors all the time and, 
And no one ever talks about the king because he was so special. And instead, the queen or the queen mother would rule the country in his in his absence because he couldn't devote himself to worldly affairs. So the queen was in charge of everything, and she had people who worked for him, worked for her, like like this uh, Ethiopian eunuch. And he had a lot of power, he had a lot of responsibility, he had a lot of money, but there were some negatives that came with the job. In the ancient world, um, the way that you would make sure somebody wouldn't decide, hey, I've got power, I've got a good power base, I'm going to launch a bid for the throne myself, is you would emasculate them. And then they would say, well, what's the point? You know, I've already got power and responsibility, but I can't start a dynasty, so might as well just stay where I am. So that's the way they did that. Now, over time, the word came to mean anybody in those jobs, but chances are he actually was emasculated. We don't know, but chances are, you know, if you hear hoofbeats, you expect horses, not zebras. So he was probably emasculated as a eunuch. So that's who uh, Philip encounters. He's riding along in his um, in his chariot, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit says to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, what I wonder right here is how quickly. As, as we read this story, I think a lot of us kind of compress this into like a five-minute period. But that's because we don't do much walking. You know, I would say instead, think of a time you've walked a long distance. Um, if you've ever been in a pilgrimage, if you've ever just gone for a hike in the mountains, you know, where, you know, you know that phenomenon where, where somebody passes you and then they take a break and then you see them again because, because you passed them and then after a while they pass you again, where you kind of, that awkward, uh, I'm seeing them again for the fourth time, do I say hi, you know? So I wonder, uh, how long they walked along, uh, you know, kind of Philip kind of trotting alongside the the um, chariot, you know, overhearing a bit. I just wonder how long this took. But eventually, Philip hears what he's reading and he says, do you understand what you're reading? Um, this is, there's a, there's a joke I found out. Um, there's a joke in here. He actually kind of does a little play on word. He says, do you understand the understanding or something like that? It's a play on words, but it's lost in English. So they just said, do you understand it? But he kind of makes a joke, you know, Aren't those scriptures confusing sometimes, you know? Do you understand it? And, and, um, the Ethiopian takes him seriously. He says, how can I without someone to guide me? And so he invites Philip to get in, um, to, to ride with him as they go along. And then, um, we read the, the passage he's reading. Now, uh, what we know about the, the Ethiopian at this point is that he's a eunuch. He's an important guy. But we don't know much about him. Luke tells us that he was up in Jerusalem to worship. And so Luke presumably knows his story. We, we don't. But there's questions about what that would have, what that would have looked like because in the, um, so there's the passage. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. But in that time, there were two scriptures that were relevant in the case of eunuchs because they did show up occasionally. And so one of them is from Deuteronomy 23, which says very flatly, no eunuch is to enter the congregation of God. Just, that's it. Not allowed. So, um, that's, that's in Deuteronomy. But there's another scripture which is in conversation with that, which is from Isaiah later on in the same book of Isaiah. It says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths in my temple and courts, I will give them a monument and a name. So that suggests that eunuchs are welcome in the court. We don't know. We don't know exactly the circumstance of this eunuch. But it would be good if we did, because I think a lot of us know people like him. You know, I'm not, not eunuchs, but we know people who are welcome, or maybe they're not welcome. 
that that from what they know about what they know about God, what they know about the scriptures is maybe they're welcome, maybe they're not welcome. Maybe they're they're welcome technically, but when they show up everyone stares at them like they're some kind of exotic animal. I think a lot of us know people who are uneasy with the thought of attending a church because of their story, because of whatever has happened to them, uh, whatever whatever their life story is up to that point, where they may actually, you know, if, if we were honest, there's probably people you and I would be very uncomfortable if they showed up in church some Sunday, if we're honest. I think that, that there are people, and, and really, when that's the case, we just need to repent of it, because there's no scriptural authority for us to, to impose burdens on people beyond what God does. So, so there's that. I think, if we're honest, we may be the ones who make them feel uncomfortable. But sometimes it may be that they just tried it out. They showed up in a church sometime and they felt uncomfortable for whatever reason. And maybe it's again because they've been hurt. Um, there's another passage that we read. We just ran over it. So I'm going to look at it again. Can you go to the Isaiah passage again? The next one. So this is the passage he's reading. Okay. He's reading about someone who is humiliated, someone who suffered injustice, someone, this next verse, who can describe his generation? That means, what can you say about his children? You can't say anything about his children. It's a rhetorical question. You can't say anything about his descendants because he will never have any. And it says his life is taken away from the earth. So I have to wonder if that's what the, what the um, eunuch is looking at. He's looking at this and saying, is there really a God who understands my story? Is there a God? Do I dare believe in a God who cares about people like me? And he's wondering, could there really be a God who knows what it's like, who can relate to me? And that's the question I think he's asking. And we know people like that. We know people who are saying, do I dare believe in a God who cares about my story? So he says, to Philip, about whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Is the prophet really telling a story about somebody that God cares about? And so Philip opens his mouth and begins to speak. Starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What's to prevent me from getting baptized? Again, we don't know what the rules were that were in play in, in the temple in Jerusalem back then, but there's reason to think he might have been excluded from worship. And he's asking, how about baptism? Can I get baptized? And Philip answers by doing it. He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, I have to tell you, it took me three tries to pass the ordination exam in biblical exegesis, but I passed the polity exam the first time. The polity exam is church governance. It's basically how well can you navigate the book of order. And I know Methodists have got one of these too, but it's even thicker. Um, and I will tell you, this is a most irregular baptism. There are a lot of things that are very troublesome about this baptism. Let me let me read you some of the so so the relevant the relevant material is um, in section W. Dash two point three zero one one A. So it says for reasons of I've highlighted. I'm not going to find them. So I highlighted the correct answers here. So it says for reasons of order, baptism shall be authorized by the session. I don't see 
the session getting involved in this at all. It's administered by a teaching elder or ruling a commission ruling elder. Well, Philip is a commission table servant. Okay, he is not a teaching elder or a ruling elder. Okay, when invited by the session or authorized by the Presbyterian, eh, accompanied by the reading and proclaiming of the word. All right, we got that. So one out of five so far. All right, celebrated in a service of public worship. Eh, Extraordinary circumstances may call for the administration of baptism apart from the worship. So under certain circumstances, you can bend the rules. But it says the congregation shall be represented by one or more members of the session. A proper understanding of the meaning of the sacrament be offered by the teaching elder. Maybe. Did you notice? I haven't commented on it to this point, but look at your Bible. Find verse 37 and see what it says. Verse 37 is missing. And the reason is because someone like me in the second century added it. They said there's a correct answer here. Yes, you can get baptized, Ethiopian eunuch, if blah, 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 blah. And they added a verse 37. And it's in one set of, of manuscripts from the second century and forward, but it's not in the older manuscripts that are, that are from uh, uh, different parts of the world in different languages and so forth that were translated immediately and went in different directions. So somebody like me said, you know what, Philip is, is breaking the rules here. We better add a little bit here to this speech of Philip's. And later on they took it out. But the way we do things now is when we, when we cut and paste with the Bible, um, we put little footnotes, right? We don't just kind of add it, right? Now, or take it out. We actually say, there are some manuscripts that say this, but they're not good manuscripts and they're later ones. So, so there's reasons they took it out. But verse 37 is somebody like me saying, you, you broke a whole bunch of rules here, Philip. So, so they're adding back in the rules so that we don't freak out because Philip broke the rules. But the reality is Philip did break a bunch of rules. Philip broke all kinds of rules. And the thing is, I know why those rules are there. there there's a reason why I had to take that biblical exegesis test. If you think about the Dark Ages, the, 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 there was widespread illiteracy. And people would go to their pastor and they'd say, I've got this concern. What about this thing in my life? And the pastor wouldn't be able to read the Bible. And, and so the, the pastor might have heard somewhere along the way and maybe remembered that there's an answer, but maybe not. But the pastor could not read the Bible. And so one of the things that the reformers did is they said, you cannot go into the pulpit. You cannot become a pastor of a church unless you can read in the Bible in the original Hebrew and Greek languages. So that's the reason we have that rule. That's why I had to take that test until I finally passed it. So I understand why that rule is there. But at the same time, Philip is breaking that rule. And that brings me to the real problem. We have credentials, and Philip doesn't. But what Philip has is credibility. You know, the, the two words both come from the same root, credence, which is, do you believe it? And credentials are supposed to give you a reason to believe something. I believe this guy is competent to be a pastor, competent to answer my theological questions, because he can search and study the Bible. He can understand what it's saying. He has a credential. But the reality is, Philip has credibility. Philip has walked alongside the Ethiopian. Philip has listened to the Ethiopian. Philip has gotten to know the Ethiopian. Philip knows what the Ethiopian's concerned about. He listened to what the Philip, what, what the Ethiopian has to ask. He has credibility. And the reality is, so do you. So do you. There are people who will not come to a church. And so whatever credentials I have are really indifferent 
It doesn't matter what kind of credentials I have because they're not coming here. But they see you. They see you at work. They see you at school. They see you as a Christian. And they are going to come to you someday and they're going to say, about whom was the prophet talking? They're going to say, is it true that there's a God who cares about people like me? Is it true that I can find grace and mercy and forgiveness? That that Jesus can connect me back to a God and I can start having God's power at work in my life? Because you have credibility. They know you. They don't know me. And they don't care about my credential. So, what do we do with this? Well, I think for most of us, the application is maybe to look at our life a different way. Imagine your life, the the events of your life, and instead of seeing them as kind of random or kind of, you know, cause and effect, imagine that the Holy Spirit is orchestrating them, that the Holy Spirit is leading you along your life, causing you to bump into the people in your life, arranging these meetings, giving you opportunities to get to know people, to gain credibility, so that someday when the time comes, They will ask you a question and you'll be able to speak into their life and give them hope and comfort. Now, I don't know if you should baptize them. I'll tell you one thing. You talk to every pastor who, every pastor who's, who's duly passed their polity exam. You get them among other pastors. They'll never tell you, but we tell each other about the time we broke the rules because It was a hospital. The baby was dying. The parents needed that baby baptized. Now, the book says they don't need that baby baptized. Our theology says they don't need that baby baptized. We believe in a God of grace. But the parents had a dying baby. And we say, I know what Jesus would do. If you think about it, what did Jesus get in trouble for? Jesus got in trouble because he healed on the Sabbath. He broke the rules because he said, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, Maybe, maybe the circumstances of your life are that God is going to actually arrange situations and you will baptize somebody. I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. I know a church, there's a church I admire, where the pastors never baptize anybody. You know who baptizes someone? The person that they name as their Philip. The person who prayed for them. The person who kept praying for them until the day they they finally decided that they believed in Jesus and were willing to commit their lives to him. They, they, they pray for the Sunday school teacher that, that said that thing and then they went off on their own path, but, but the Sunday school teacher is still around and when they come back to the church, the Sunday school teacher baptizes them. And you know what? I don't know if that's right or wrong. You know, I've got a book that says it's not right. Okay, I've got a book that says that's, that's not the way it works. But I've got a book that pretty much says it is. And I know one thing. I know that that church baptizes a whole lot more people than we do. So I don't know. I struggle with it. What I do know is that what the church has been doing for the last 200 years, 2,000 years, for most of the last 2,000 years, it's not working. And it's not just me who knows it. I told you a couple of weeks ago, the permission-giving certificate I got from the bishop, this says we are, we are encouraged to a free pass to experiment or innovate in Christian mission. Well, 36 years ago today, the Apollo 13 came back to Earth successfully. This is the New York Times headline. And some of you saw the movie, uh, Failure is Not an Option. Um, 
our district superintendent, Carlo Rappinett, cannot quote that line enough. He's always quoting Gene Krantz, the mission control guy. Failure is not an option. You know, failure is not an option. And, and just like the, the people in the, in the movie, the people at NASA who figured out on the fly what they needed to do to do the work of the, of, of NASA to bring the mission, the, to bring the mission home successfully, to save the people's lives, we have to ask the same questions. If we really believe that failure is not an option, are we willing, are we willing to be guided more by the Bible than by our book of order? I think that's an important question for us to wrestle with. So, look at your life not as a series of random events. Look at your life as a series of arranged meetings, encounters that the Holy Spirit has brokered to bring you to the place someday where you can speak grace and mercy to somebody who desperately longs to hear about the God who loves them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gospel. We give you thanks for the book of Acts and particularly the lessons we learn in it about the church. Lord, uh, all we know about the church is that you love the world and what the church is doing now is not as successful as it was in the past. So we pray you'd guide us, you'd guide our denominations, you'd guide our leaders, you'd guide people like me who know the rules and have credentials. We pray you'd, you'd bless everyone here who has credibility so that they can speak your word with grace into a world that longs to hear it. And I pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>